Welcome back, everyone. This is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. First of all, you don't want to miss next week. Um, it's already in the can, as they say in the biz. My interview with Avner Bosky uh, from Israel. Uh, we had a wonderful conversation as we talked about his own personal faith journey as a Jewish believer. He grew up like I did in Montreal. He has his own story, and uh, you're not going to want to miss that. He also sings for us a few songs and uh, shares some insights about uh, what's going on in Israel and how we are best to understand it, uh, which is something hopefully he'll be able to come back and do some more of uh, later on. So don't forget next week, um, my discussion with Avner Bosky. Uh, but this week, we're continuing our discussion on what the Bible says about relating to government, uh, last time um, we looked mainly, we started with Romans chapter 13, which is the main section of the New Testament that is used to instruct followers of Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua, his Hebrew name, uh, instruct us on how to relate to government and that we should submit to governmental authority. Uh, but I tried to show that it doesn't actually mean what a lot of people think it means. And it comes down to that government is to be limited and that our relationship to limited government, whether it's part of our constitutional framework or not, is something that we have in our hearts, that we're not to view the government as the supreme authority. Only God is the supreme authority. And when the government tells us to do things that go against what God says, then we need to listen to God rather than to government. Now, that's not an excuse to do whatever you want. I'd like to read another passage along those lines before we get into the, the main thing that I wanted to share in, in, in this episode. And we're going to be looking at uh, Yeshua himself and what he represents and what he taught uh, and its implications for for this subject. Uh, but similar to what we find in Romans 13, which is a lot more complicated than how a lot of people think, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, we read, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorant of ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So note that serving God means um, appropriately submitting to human authority, but only as far as it goes. Verse 17 reads, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So in order to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, that means there's going to be tension between some of those. And, and while our attitude should be one of, of humility, of kindness, of gentleness, of love, of respect towards all people as, as much as we can, at the same time, we're to fear God. By putting fearing God in the in the midst of these other directives, it reminds us that God still has to come first. But that's not an excuse, as I said, to do whatever we want. And I do want to be I want to stress that 
really, really strongly because when we talk about limited government, that God is over the government, we need to listen to God rather than to human authority, um, it's it's relatively easy to make that turn that into uh, a license for, an excuse for doing whatever our personal preferences are. We're called to be servants of God. And so we need to be very careful when we decide to that it's necessary not to submit to somebody who's calling for our submission. This is one of the things, too, in dealing with our situation today, in 2021, uh, it's different from the situation that the early believers found themselves in the first century. We're in a democracy, which means we actually have a say we're not expected simply to just do whatever we're told. We're, we're, we're supposed to have freedom of expression and freedom to, to protest and, and to put forth our candidates and all, all sorts of things and, and to write to our MPs and, and so on and, and so on and so forth. Uh, we, in, a, in a democracy, the citizenship owns, in a sense, the government. That's a very different situation from, from the first century. Despite... Our democratic system, however, we're in a situation currently where we are regulated in every aspect of life. And uh, that's a whole other talk and probably requires somebody more expert in these things than me. But one of the things that we're facing is that we're encountering governmental rules every which way we turn for almost every area of life. And I think there's at least an... Uh, a necessity to have a, a conversation about how appropriate that is. And I refer to one of those things with regard to the COVID situation. Uh, when my wife reacted, uh, when we were told that our own children shouldn't come to our house, and does the government have that right to tell us who we could have in our homes? You might think they do. But I believe it's at least it's questionable, and we need to re-empower people to it make to to make informed decisions about what God has given them jurisdiction over, and not assume just because a governing authority, at whatever level we have, so many levels of government, um, in 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 Canada and United States, um, just because they tell us to do something, does it automatically mean that we're, we're supposed to do what, what they say? That's, that's a lot of the question, isn't it? Obviously, I don't think so. I don't think biblically the government is able to assume any kind of authority that they decide that they should have. And the way we can know what belongs to what realm of life? Is it belong to God? Does it belong to the government? And so on. Is by knowing God better, knowing his word better. Remember, I'm going to stress it again. This is not about just doing what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, wherever we want to do it. Uh, the Bible doesn't call us to a, a political system of thought called libertarianism, where we expect to throw off all um, all sorts of rules and regulations. We might disagree about rules and regulations, but there is a place for government to to help 
provide um, a well-running society where the line should be drawn. That's some of what we're trying to grapple with. And I think that has to be an ongoing discussion. Okay, what I want to do now is, as I said, I want to look specifically uh, at Yeshua's mission itself. I'm, I'm especially saying Yeshua uh, in this episode for a particular reason, which I'm going to mention, because his name actually makes a difference with regard to the issue of politics and government, which I'll explain in a moment. And so we're going to be looking at his mission in particular, and then that mission that he then shares with his followers. Yeshua's mission is called by the term gospel, which which is an old English word. It might be Middle English. I'm not being technical. Gospel means good news. And it's actually derived from the Hebrew good news that's found in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. Uh, where um, uh, the, that's the passage that talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news to Zion. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to grab my Bible, okay? Grateful for wheels on a chair. I should have written the verse down in my notes, but um, I'm going to read it here so I quote it properly. All right, Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The essence of the good news spoken through the prophet Isaiah is the reestablishment of the reign of God. Now, I know a lot of people, when they hear the term gospel, good news, think that is completely and completely focused on, it belongs exclusively to the message that Yeshua died for our sins and rose from the dead. And if you believe that, then you will be saved. It, while that is all true, absolutely true, the death and re- resurrection of Yeshua actually is not the good news. This deserves a much longer talk, but I'm I'm going to try to explain as briefly as I can. It's not his death and resurrection that, that is the good news. The death and resurrection of Yeshua is what makes the good news possible. The good news being Yeshua is king. And that is what was being proclaimed. In the Jewish mind, Yeshua, the coming of Yeshua is the fulfillment of the expectation that the Messiah, who was to be the king, has come. But in the first century, this idea of good news also had another layer due to the, the Roman context which, uh, which they were in. Because in the Roman Empire, the Greek word that we translate as good news or, or gospel in the New Testament is the Greek word yangelion. That's where we get the term evangelism from. The, there's a U in there and the yang, it's like, a, it's like an E and like a U and, and the U somehow becomes a V. You didn't need to know that. Anyway, yangelion is the word for 
is a word for good news. It's a compound word, good news. Um, but a yangelion was a technical term in those days. And it had to do with announcements about the emperor, Caesar. Could be his birthday, could be a victory. And so a proclamation about the emperor was yangelion, good news. So by referring in the New Testament, by referring to the good news of Yeshua as yangelion, that's what we call a subversive message, a subversive message. It's, on one hand, it's simply good news, but on the other hand, it's saying there's a new king in town. To the, to, to the Roman society, the angelion of Jesus or Yeshua was to say, Jesus is king and Caesar is not. And so that's rooted in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. And so the message of the Yangelion, the gospel, the good news, is what we would call a subversive message. On one hand, it's it's going around telling people in those days in the Roman Empire that in this little corner of the empire, this upstart region, the land of Israel, where people had a very different religion, a carpenter slash preacher slash miracle worker did something unusual. Not that the dying on the cross was unusual, especially for somebody who was being proclaimed as king. Remember, that's what the, the charge was above his cross. The official charge against Yeshua was that he was the king of the Jews. And so that's a that's claiming that he was confronting the empire. They were mocking him, not knowing that he really was the king of Israel and savior of the world. And, and so on one hand, he was being viewed as Jewish rabbi, maybe a troublemaker, and dealt with in the same way that they dealt with all such troublemakers. But in actuality, the proclamation about him was Yangelion. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. That message, that gospel message, confronts everything and it relates to all of life. So there's a lot of people that get nervous when we talk about things of the Bible, the faith, believing in Yeshua, and um, then at the same time talking about political matters. But politics is simply affairs of people and how and, and those things that are affecting daily living, the rules and regulations in a society that are established by a certain authorities. We elect ours. They didn't elect them back then. But there were authorities nonetheless, and politics affects day-to-day life. And Yeshua comes, and what does he affect? Does he affect everything but politics? Now, he wasn't running for office. He wasn't seeking to become, wait a second, he was seeking to become king. But how he went about it is very different than what we might call normal politics. He, he went about confronting his society at every level, including politically, because his presence challenged the authorities 
And he challenged the, the authorities' authority by calling people to primary allegiance to God in his name and according to, to, to his according to his teaching. His that confrontation began to happen at his in his earliest days. Um, remember, we don't know how old he was. Uh, often, the story of the Magi, the often called the wise men from the east, probably from Persia, when they arrive on the scene in Matthew chapter two, that's often been connected to his birth story. But it's pretty clear that it happened later. We don't know how much later. He was still quite young. Matthew speaks about the child, not the baby. And he's in a house. He's not in. Um, he's he's not with with the um, where the animals were when he was laid in the manger. But when these wise men, these non-Jewish um, learn learned people came, who did they come looking for? They came looking for the king of the Jews. Maybe they were really innocent about it. All they knew from their studies, they might have been influenced by Jewish people from years before, beginning with people like Daniel during the Babylonian exile that then the Persians took over, and there might have been Jewish influence uh, among uh, the Persians. And the idea that there was coming a day when a great Jewish king would arise most likely to have an effect upon the whole world, which is why they would come, that it had more to do with just the Jewish people. And they end up going right into Jerusalem, the Jewish capital, and they begin asking, where is he who is born a king of the Jews? Well, there was a king. It was a very complicated political situation with the Romans over everything. But at that time, there was also a, a king installed in, in Jerusalem, a Jewish king. He's actually part Jewish, Herod. Um, and he was a, um, known as Herod the Great. He was great because of what he accomplished, but he was actually a terrible man who accomplished great things, like the, the things that he built. You've heard of Masada. Well, that was one of many um, fortresses that Herod built because he was so insecure. We can go back to my COVID and fear talk from a, a few weeks ago. How fear drives you to do things. And Herod was driven by his fear. And he was responsible for, for um, killing so many people, even in his own family, in order to keep his place in position. And so how do you think he felt? when they came looking for the one born king of the Jews. Well, you know what happened. Hearing that he was to be born in Bethlehem, he ordered that all the children up to age two, which is another reason why we believe that it was after his birth, well after his birth, um, should be slaughtered. To think what this man did to keep his position. But Yeshua hadn't done anything yet. Well, he might've been crawling. Maybe he'd been walking and saying some words by this time, but uh, he wasn't showing what he was all about yet in any way, shape, or form, hadn't done anything, and he was already, in a sense, his very presence was causing all sorts of trouble, uh, political trouble. So while he wasn't doing anything political, his presence 
had political ramifications and got the one of the head honchos of that day to horribly act out. And when I say get, he didn't. Well, you know what I mean. I think you know what I mean. Remember, please feel free to comment below or send your comments and questions uh, to uh, comments at thinkingbiblically.org. I'll be very happy to clarify anything that um, that where I'm in error or said, I maybe should have said something better. Maybe I shouldn't have said it at all. Anyway, I'd be very happy, happy to uh, converse with you as best as I can. So I want to get back to his name. This is something that a lot of people don't realize. Uh, so the, most of the English-speaking world calls him Jesus. Jesus is based on a derivative that goes back to the Greek, Jesus. And I don't have a lot of time. I've given talks on this before. And I'm, I don't have a problem. I should say this right away. I don't have a problem with the various ways his name has been adopted for various languages and cultures. On one hand, it's just sounds. It's just too bad that some of the, the uh, impact of his name is, is missing. And that's what I want to clarify because uh, it, it, it relates to this issue. And so his name is derived from the Greek, Jesus, from, from Greek to, to Latin, to some early forms of English and so on. And that it's, it's Jesus in the Greek, and somehow that becomes Jesus. It has to do with, uh, I think it's a mistake in the development of English that capital I has sometimes been changed to, to a J. So that's why in, in some cultures, the J's are Y's. So the, this, that symbol that we write as a J today actually was supposed to be a Y sound. And so a lot of these J names, and some of our kids have J names, are actually originally Y's, both in Greek and in Hebrew. Of course, his name was actually a Hebrew name. So the Greek Jesus that became Jesus is actually the Greek version of either Yeshua or Yehoshua. And I say either because Yeshua, and we see this in, in the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, uh, Yeshua is the short form of Yehoshua. There was a priest in the later years of ancient Israel He's called either in some places Yehoshua and other places Yeshua in Hebrew, and that's similar. There's other names do the same sort do the same sort of thing, especially the, the names that begin with Yeho. Some of them get become just Yeh. That's just the way it is, and languages do that where names um, get shortened. And so, and the reason why we know this, if you go to the Greek translation, the original Greek translation called the Septuagint of the book of Joshua, Joshua in Hebrew is Yehoshua, it says Jesus. When the book of Hebrews refers to Joshua in the Hebrew scriptures, it says Jesus. So Jesus is the Greek name or the Greek version of the name Yehoshua. So when Mary and Joseph were told to name the baby 
in Greek, because that's what we have in the New Testament, when, we're, when they didn't hear from the angel call him Jesus, he either said Yehoshua or Yeshua, which to them is how we would understand Joshua. Why is that important? Well, everybody knows who Joshua is. God purposely called the Messiah Joshua. And by doing so, it 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 uh, um what's the word i'm looking for yeah you don't know not enhanced but it, it it or encouraged um bolster um i can't think of the word offhand it it furthered the idea that the messiah was to be a great military leader because that was the understanding of the jewish world in that day and among jewish people who don't believe in jesus who still believe in a Messiah coming, also believe that, that he was to be a king and a great military leader. Joshua originally wasn't a king, um, but like David was both a king and a military leader. And what's happened in much Christian thought is the idea that the Jewish people expected a military leader to come, but they were wrong. Instead, a gentle savior who came to deal with our spiritual problems came and will one day will whisk us off to heaven. And that is not the teaching of the New Testament. The New Testament teaches that that Yeshua is the coming king who will who rules currently. We're going to be talking about Matthew 28 where he says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But he's now ruling like an absentee ruler given his mission to his followers but not to lead a military conquest but to bring his teaching to the entire world but it's still a form of a revolution and that's not the best word to use i'm sorry if it's not the best word to to use but it's certainly revolutionary in the sense that his teaching confronts confronts the normal ways, our normal ways of thinking, our normal ways of doing, and it's calling us unto allegiance to him first and foremost. And then any other authority relationship we have in in our lives, it's going to say in our hearts, but but our hearts means deep down in us, so that it manifests through our actions that. He is our supreme leader, and under him, we serve any other authority. So that he is first, but he is king. And one day, he will come, and he will rid the world of all evil and sickness and death. And he will judge the entire world, and he will bring the whole world under submission. And during this time, before he returns, we have an opportunity to become part of his team. And to... And, and, follow him and be part of his rescue mission that that he has been doing these past 2000 years and so we could still call him jesus or jesus or jesus these kinds of names but we need to know what that name represents and he is a conqueror but he doesn't conquer at least not for now in the way that normal conquerors conquer. 
And in a sense, he is a political leader because he's a leader of a movement of people who are called to make a difference in this life on earth. And that's going to have political ramifications because it affects how people live. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's calling for a political party and that we should um, marry, so to speak, the, um, our religious gatherings to our, our political interests. And, and one of the reasons why that should be avoided is because he empowers the individual to take responsible for their own lives and to put us in a situation where we are um, more committed to party over our allegiance to King Jesus, that creates a problem. And so until he comes and sets everything right and he puts everything in order, finally, we're in this in-between time where there is no particular group that can establish God's kingdom on earth. We're working towards what he's doing by doing good, by speaking truth. And it's too bad that when we speak truth, there's, there's pushback. But we have been called by him to take a stand for things that we need to take a stand for. When, when Yeshua took his disciples aside and taught them to pray, he taught them a, what we would call a model prayer. They wanted to learn how to pray like him. And so he gave us this prayer that became known as the Lord's Prayer. Some want to say, well, it's actually the believer's prayer. But the point is, this was the model prayer that he he gave us to pray, and it's pretty. It's a model prayer. Prayer. It's clear. We're not simply supposed to repeat it over and over again. It's to show us how to pray. And so it begins, as you know, our Father who's in heaven, may your name be kept holy. Older version, hallowed be thy name. May your name be kept holy. Then it says, Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when we pray that prayer or prayers like that prayer, we're asking God to make changes on earth to, and particular changes that will bring the affairs of earth in line with the will of God and that God would rule over the earth. This is not just a prayer that one day that God would come and do it, but that we are, we are, when we pray that prayer, we're engaging a process where we enter into a dynamic whereby God's kingdom begins to work itself out through our lives and through our prayers. In most of the world today, God's will is not being done. God's rule is, is not being felt, but it needs to be. And I might have said this, I don't know if I, I don't know which talk I said it in. But our desire to pray for God's rule is not so that people would begin to begin to be part of our club or our political party and do things our way uh, and to make us feel better and this sort of thing. It's because we've come to, not because we've come to see Though we have come to see that God's ways are good and healthy and practical and 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 they're a blessing to people. And everything that's wrong with the world has to do with the ways that the world 
are not in line with God's ways. Now, that could sound arrogant. It sounds like an I'm right, you're wrong sort of thing. But God's ways are good. And when people neglect God's ways, they're ripping themselves off. Anyway, to try to avoid a conflict here is impossible. Everywhere Jesus went, he was inviting conflict. His very his very coming into the world created it and agitated the powers that the powers that were at the time. And his message and his teaching continue to confront not just individual personal lives, a part of our personal private spirituality, which for a lot a lot of people who claim faith in Yeshua, that's really all that it is. It's my business or maybe a f- the people I gather with, but it really doesn't have any implication for the great world out there. Well, read what he says and how we're to relate to one another and what that means and the and and the Bible's view on so many aspects of life that automatically have implications for 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 everyone around us. And so we are called to confront the world in which we live in. And, th- and that's what, what has been called the Great Commission is all about. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, I referred to it briefly a moment ago. It says, And Jesus, or Yeshua, came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all all that I have commanded you. And he goes on, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, which is a really good thing, because I wouldn't want to do this by myself, uh, uh, on top of doing it with all of you, whoever wants to do this along with me. Anyway, he has called us, he's given us a mandate. There's talks about mandates. The government today has mandates. Well, If you're a follower of Yeshua, you have a mandate, and your mandate is to make disciples of all nations. And and I I heard this misused the other day again. Making a disciple isn't getting somebody to believe, becoming a believer, get them to become a follower of Yeshua. Because how do you get someone? Because the idea is we can get them to make an affirmative decision uh, with regard to Yeshua, we've made a disciple. No, we haven't, because the very essence of what a disciple is, is a learner, a follower. It's a person given over to the discipline of the great teacher, the Messiah, the King. And so to make a disciple means to call people to follow Yeshua and submit to his teaching. What does that include? Well, it actually includes the entire Bible. So some of you want to say, well, we just look at what Yeshua teaches, and that's what we're supposed to teach people, and just find the quotes. Well, when you look at something like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, besides the fact that it's exceptionally um, extensive in, in the things that he covers there, what we see there is Yeshua, he's on a mountain, on a hillside, teaching his disciples, it and and speaking about Torah, God's law, 
the law or the Torah of Moses. And he's expounding Torah unto the people. And what he's doing there is he is teaching the people the way to understand God's word in the way that God himself intended. God's word in God's way. What a gift God has given to us through the Messiah and his teaching. Does that mean if it's not in the Sermon on the Mount or it's not somewhere else in the New Testament, therefore we should ignore it? The New Testament acts as a bridge of the Hebrew scriptures to this messianic age in which we live. It also provides a bridge to the nations of the world and connects the nations of the world to God's word. The New Testament is not Act 2 and forget about Act 1. Actually, a lot of people think of the New Testament as Act 1 and that the Old Testament was the warm-up. And of course, when you go to the show, the big show, often you know you go to see the great celebrity, and there might be several opening acts that are maybe getting a chance to perform before a large crowd for the first time, kind of idea. But you're not there for the opening acts; you're there for the the main act, and then Yeshua is the main act. But that's not what he teaches at all. When he says to obey everything I've commanded you, he's saying to follow the intentions of God's word as I have shown you. And it's all that God has teaches in his word. Now, how to understand the various bits, I've shared in other weeks too. I, I, I did an Old Testament course recently. Part of that was sharing is the Torah for today. We need to know how to discern, how to take these ancient words and bring them into our day. And that hasn't always been done very well, and we need to get better at it. But by and large, God has revealed himself through the whole Bible, and Yeshua calls us to bring that teaching to the nations of the world. And when we do that, we are confronting the the ways, the ways of the world. We're confronting government sanctioned things and things the government says to do and government says not to do, we find ourselves in conflict with that. Well, what are we going to do? Well, we have an example of what Yeshua's followers did in Acts 4, when they were told by the Jewish authorities who had jurisdiction in, in, in their part of the world, there was the, remember there were the Romans, but then they had their own level of, of what we can call local government, and they were forbidden by the authorities uh, to to speak about this Yeshua being the Messiah. And uh, and they were, they were threatened by them, um, but they told them, you judge for yourself if it's right to listen to God or men. Now, the Jewish mind had been trained to think in that way. Now, the Jewish leadership in, in Jerusalem would not think that following Yeshua was God's way. But the idea that God's way was over man's way, that they understood. And so that's why they could say something like that. You, you judge. You know, because it was very clear what they believed God's way was going to be and what they were going to do about it. What gets even more interesting, when they get back together to pray after this very possibly designed to be anyway intimidating affair, they prayed that they would get into more trouble. Well, they didn't say it that way. They, 
ask God to note that the threats that were being fired towards them and then said, give us boldness to speak your word and lay your hand to heal and do miraculous signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. That which got them into trouble originally, they were asking for more of it. And they knew what was likely going to happen. Well, of course, they knew what happened to their leader because the, the governmental forces, the various jurisdictions and various levels all ganged up to seek to put away their leader, their king. But they also knew God had the final word with how he's going to work that out. And Yeshua's own mission, like the fact that, well, he, and so this is where the, we also need to be, we need to be shrewd. And we have to understand how he's called us to go about what he's called us to do. He's not called us to military conflict. Military conflict stays with uh, the state. We've been not as followers of Yeshua, as as a community of, of faith worldwide, we're not called to be part of an, of an army. But we're called to teach. We're called to stand. We're called to not do certain things. We're called to do certain things. And just like they reacted to Yeshua, they're going to react to us. Now, how we go about doing it, I would imagine there might have been some people, maybe there weren't, when they got in trouble saying, well, maybe we should do this a little differently. Well, maybe we should be more secretive. Maybe we should, and they didn't. They actually prayed that they would, that things would happen very, very publicly. It seemed they believed that that was the best way. Remember last week, I mentioned that I don't understand why Daniel uh, prayed when they were forbidden from praying to any other anyone else but the king. He prayed by an open window where people could see him. Why did he do that? Well, maybe he believed that God instructed him to do so. We see the early followers of Yeshua being very, very public, in a sense, confrontational. And again, they they never stood up and said that the that well, they did, didn't they? I'll take that back. They actually spoke badly about the Jewish authorities that, tr- that um, uh, I can't think of the word again, went in cahoots <laughs> with, uh, with the Roman authorities to put, to put Yeshua to death. And that was the wrong thing to do. They stood up in public and they criticized the authorities and they were not in a democratic society. Well, you might say, well, that was it was a religious, something very religious. Sometimes we might have to stand up and speak against a great evil in our society. I can't tell you what that is. But are we free to do that when we deem that it's necessary? May God help us. Remember, we need to we need to make sure that our we have servant hearts. It's not about doing just what we want to do. During this COVID time, a lot of us have been upset because we've lost conveniences. And I question making a big fuss about conveniences. On the other hand, we're supposed to be a free democratic society. We certainly have a voice. But then how do we express that voice? These questions aren't easy ones. And I don't think there's a size-fits-all answer. But the fact that we have been given a commission by the Lord to stand up for what he says is right that we must do 
and that could get us into trouble. I think I've covered it all. So we're going to leave it at that. Please send me your comments either down below. Don't forget to subscribe. Hit the notification bell. And you can email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. You might be noticing I stop when I say that because I also have torahbytes.org, which is a little different, but you might want to check that out too. So for now, this is Alan Gilman for Thinking Biblically. Hope to see you again soon.